So it gets more difficult as the days pass to speak into the silence. Um, I often find myself, before giving a talk, having this great reluctance to <laughs> to kind of say anything into the into the space. I'm also aware that it is the day's entertainment, so <laughs> I'm not going to begrudge you that. <laughs> I can't promise that it'll be entertaining. Let's see. So, yeah, over the days we've been, um, we are really exploring this um, this human human experience as it manifests uh, through each of us, um, and with the intention of exploring this human experience in ways that, um, that open up perspectives, that open up um, ways of getting in touch with our experience in, in kind of ways that are not so, um, so habitual, that might be new to some degree. So, for example, Nathan was speaking about this last night, you know, what happens when we... Um, Look at the body, yeah, in a in a slightly different way. You know, we kind of notice that we have this habitual way of relating to the body as um, something that's constant, something that's reliable, um, something that's um, mine, <laughs> yeah. And what happens when we look at the body? from that lens of, of a Nietzsche that we've exploring, been exploring today, for example, of seeing the, the flux, the change, the inconstancy, um, or seeing the space that makes up the body rather than the sense of solidity. That can be another way that we um, explore the body experience. And as we do that, there can be a sense of shift, yeah? even if it's just for a moment, Sometimes it can be um, startling in a somewhat unpleasant way. Yeah, it can be a little bit scary. Um, and at other times it can be startling in, in quite a, a refreshing way. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, there might be a sense of more, more space, more well-being. So we can say that you know what we're doing here is we're kind of cultivating um, a kind of more holistic approach to our lives and to the human condition, the human experience. Yeah, that's kind of made up of more detail, more um, ways of relating. And I just use this word cultivating. It's actually. Um, in, in the practice, the word bhavana, which is usually translated as meditation, actually means cultivation or development. Yeah, and for some reason, at some point, it was translated as meditation, and then it's just kept going. But I think we can get a, a kind of a different flavor of what we're doing when we think about it as cultivation or development. So 
we can say that what we're cultivating is awakening or liberation or freedom you know notice how these different words um, resonate with you and, and see which one kind of sits best yeah awakening wakefulness waking up liberation freedom you can say kind of I like the awakening because it's not an awakening from, it can be, but it's also an awakening to. Yeah. So what is it that we're waking up to? Yeah. What is it that we become free of? And in the, in the tradition, in the Buddha's teachings, it's, it's pretty simple, you know. We're cultivating freedom from clinging. That's what we're doing. So we're cultivating the freedom, the liberation of um, transforming dukkha through non-clinging, through the opposite of clinging, or through letting go of clinging. So I don't, I don't think we've used clinging so much yet in in, in this retreat as a language. Um, I just like to kind of put it into the to the context of some of the um, some of the teachings that we have used. So clinging and craving to a pair, <laughs> craving and clinging—that's the right order—are um, part of this uh, process or this map called dependent origination. You don't need to remember this name. Um, that kind of describes the process. Uh, that unfolds for us as human beings from um, our contact with the senses to dukkha, to ill-being, to suffering. And I'll kind of describe the, the process and then I'll say a little bit about it. So there's the contact through the senses, yeah, the contact of the world with uh, through the senses, yeah, sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, a touch, or a content contact of the mind, yeah, thought, mental activity, and then from that, this we've already spoken about. From that arises vedana, yeah. So when there's contact, there is vedana. Okay, that sense of pleasant, unpleasant or neither one or the other, the neutral. From the Vedana, or kind of, yeah, from the Vedana, I'm not quite happy with that language. (laughs) Following the the Vedana comes craving, um, which is this, um, the the translation of the Pali word literally means thirst or hunger. It's that sense of something is lacking. So with a pleasant, unpleasant, and I'll kind of break it down with an example in a moment comes the sense of craving and that is followed by clinging so for our purposes often it's easier to think of those two as one process because it's very very quick very close and from the clinging there is the becoming the sense of self arises and from the becoming dukkha yeah ill being dissatisfaction disease stress anxiety and the list goes on 
the Buddha loved going into detail about all the different aspects of dukkha. So I'm going to give an example of this to, to break down this, this map and really to see it as a map. It's not like a, it's not like a scientific description of a process. It's, it's a map of a process that's actually more complex than, than this linear representation. So there may be, say, we're sitting here in meditation and there's a sound that arises. Yeah, can be from outside, can be from inside. And that sound has, so the sound is the contact. Yeah, That sound has an unpleasant Vedana. Okay. And so with the unpleasant Vedana will arise the don't like, yeah, the pushing away. Yeah. The pushing away, don't like, don't want. And that pushing away is the craving and the clinging. Yeah, it's the kind of very instinctual response to the unpleasant. We have something to say about it. It kind of doesn't just stay unpleasant. There's something that builds up. And from the pushing away... Um, arises through, you know, I think I went through this yesterday, it'll be the, you know, I don't like this, I don't want this, um, I can't stand it, will arise, will come the becoming, the, the sense of self, the I, yeah, can you see how the I gets stronger in the process? I don't like it, I can't stand it, yeah, yeah, I need to get rid of it, I need to make it stop. And as I'm describing this, hopefully you can see that with from that clinging and craving and that becoming, the not wanting, the I don't want, comes the suffering. Yeah? That the suffering, the dukkha, is not in that initial sound, but in that process of pushing away. Yeah, and that pushing, and then it get magnifies and magnifies and magnifies, yeah. escalates and escalates and escalates. Does that make sense to people? Yeah. So the dukkha is in that push-pull, yeah, the, the pushing something away or the pulling something towards if it's pleasant. Yeah, that's, that's where the dukkha is, in the contraction, in the clinging, um, or in the relationship. I think that's the language Nathan was using yesterday. If I, if I still remember it correctly. So in the relationship to the thing, which is this relationship of wanting, not wanting, pushing away or pulling towards. That's where the dukkha is. And so the relief of the dukkha, yeah, because the, these teachings are, you know, they're really interested, as I said, in the liberation, yeah, in the freedom from dukkha. The relief of the dukkha comes when the clinging um, subsides, when it goes down, when the contraction, we've been using this language, the clinging and craving come with contraction. When that goes down, the degree of suffering, the degree of dukkha goes down also. So the relief of dukkha, another word of it, the happiness, the well-being, arises with the decrease of that. So say if something was unpleasant and it stops or disappears or we get away from it, then the clinging is no longer there, the craving is no longer there and we feel a sense of relief. 
Yeah. And equally, if it's a pleasant thing and we got it, <laughs> what happens in the moment that we get what we want? You really, really explore this for yourself in your experience. What happens is a relaxation of that contraction of the wanting, of the craving, of the clinging. And we associate that feeling with happiness and well-being. Okay. This is really interesting about us as human beings. And um, there's this research they did a few years ago. I, I quote it a lot in talks when I talk about this, um, where they they wanted to... Um, there was research about, about happiness and about what brings happiness, um, and it was in the U.S. So they decided to do the experiment by sending people out into a shopping mall with credit cards, because, of course, what brings happiness is shopping. Um, anyway, so they sent people out to, do, to, to shop in a mall with credit cards and they had all these sensors that were measuring I don't know exactly what it was but they were measuring indicators of 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 happiness and um so they were you know they had them on the whole time so they measured what happened when they were walking around and everything was neutral and then they measured what happened when they suddenly saw something that was pleasant had a pleasant fade in her, and they kind of wanted it and they measured what happened when they took it and, you know, checked the price tag and saw they could afford it, <laughs> took it to the till and paid for it and walked away with it, okay? And so they got a kind of a, a result that showed when these, um, whatever they were measuring, these indicators of happiness, when they were the highest. Any guesses of all that process? And it's not a test, I'm just going to... Before they pay? Just yeah. before. When they realize they could afford it, yes. Yeah, another good one. When they saw what they wanted, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot, you know, it's really interesting that when it peaked was in the moment, so Ludwig was the closest, <laughs> in the moment where they were handing over their credit card to pay. That was the peak. So it's like, okay, I'm paying for it. It's practically mine, but the cashier still has it. Yeah. And then from the moment, so it kind of goes up and up and up and up. And in that moment, it peaks. Yeah. And then once they finish the transaction, they get the shopping bag. And this is true of all of us. We can laugh at these poor Americans, but it's the same for us when we go shopping. Um, you know, it starts going down again from the moment when they walk off, when the transaction is finished, they have, from the moment they have it in their hand, yeah, that shopping bag with whatever it was that they wanted. And so this is, you know, for me, this is brilliant. I love research. Um, because, you know, that's the moment when um, the clinging has, for that particular object has dissolved. But before... Yeah, that craving kicks in again and we're looking for something else, <laughs> right? Because as we know, things yeah, do not bring lasting satisfaction and it's interesting to see how quickly that satisfaction <laughs> starts waning. Yeah, It's not even what we would think, you know, okay, we take it home and after a few days, <laughs> yeah, 
for, you know, it, there will be a sense of happiness from the object if you ask the people. It's still there. That's still real. It's not like it's they're imagining it or we're imagining it. But it starts to go down from the moment that, that we have it. So that relief of the craving, yeah, that relief of, uh, is it mine, isn't it mine, is it mine, is it mine? Am I going to get it? As soon as we get it, yeah, as soon as we get it, um, and it, and 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 that and then what happens to us as human beings the reason why ob- objects don't give us lasting satisfaction is that it's such a strong mechanism that it immediately moves to something else so we're kind of like on this um on this treadmill yeah of looking for things to satisfy us including you know including really positive things yeah human beings relationships um you know work, all of that, yeah, looking for that. And that movement, what's propelling us is that movement of of the thirst, yeah, of the thirst as we meet the world. So what what the teachings are are offering to us as a question, exploration, as a practice is to see, okay, what can bring, yeah, that reduction in the clinging and the craving, what can bring that easing of contraction in our direct experience from within? Yeah. So that we're not constantly looking for it externally. Yeah, not constantly kind of in that the the image in the um in the in the Buddhist traditions is like a being on this wheel of samsara called yeah the wheel of of um just kind of constantly going around and around and around so what supports this non-clinging what supports the easing of contraction things we've been doing here already (laughs) yeah so you know meta practice um looking at experience through the lens of anicca like we've been doing today yeah, anything that we do that cultivates, that nourishes um, calmness, spaciousness, openness, yeah, all of that, um, these are all wholesome ways of looking. Yeah, they're wholesome ways of relating to experience. And we cultivate them intentionally, like we've been doing, both so that they arise more naturally yeah, in our experience. They become our habit rather than this looking for something to satisfy me from outside. Um, So we cultivate them so that they become, they arise more naturally and they arise more often. And um, also we cultivate them so that we can apply them intentionally when we need to. (laughs) Yeah. So when things are difficult, when we get stuck in something, yeah, when something's painful, we can bring them in. They become something that is available to us, a resource. So, you know, one one practice question that has been coming up in in kind of my conversations with people um, over the days has been, you know, just checking what would metta look like right now? You know, that can be a, a way of bringing in the metta way of looking. How would metta look? What would it look like in this situation right now? What would be, what would be a way of looking of kindness towards my experience? 
So we can intentionally bring that in. Intentionally bring that in. There's a beautiful um, story from uh, Ajahn Chah, who was uh, a master in the Thai forest tradition, and uh, we have a few monasteries in that tradition here in this country. Um, And he used to tell his students to practice seeing things as already broken. And particularly, um, you know, he would say this about something that's not so precious to us, like a glass or a mug. It might be very precious if it's holding our cup of tea that we've been dreaming about for the whole meditation. But anyway... And he said, what, you know, he gave it as a teaching instruction. You know, what, what would it mean to see this glass as already broken? Because in it is its brokenness. Yeah? It's not going to last forever. At some point it will crack, it will break. Yeah, something will happen. It will, so what would it be? How would it change our experience to see it as already broken? And we can feel right now, what's the response to that? Liz is smiling beautifully in the back. (laughs) Yeah. It can bring, I don't know, maybe that's not why you're smiling, but it can bring a sense of joy and lightness, yeah, to how we relate to things. Yeah. Or it can sometimes feel a bit depressing, maybe. That can also be a response. Yeah, if everything's already broken, what's the point? Yeah can also be something that arises. And we can see if can we practice with this in a way that is uh, that brings lightness, yeah, that takes away some of the seriousness of how we we hold things. And I love this teaching because I feel that he's really pointing to something that's possible for us. And especially if yeah we go for things that are um, you know not so precious to us to begin with. Yeah. Seeing this as already broken. And we can we can learn to see it that way. Which doesn't mean I think Nathan was saying it about our body yesterday. It doesn't mean that we don't look after it, you know, it doesn't mean that we just kind of walk around high heather coom kind of knocking things <laughs> to the ground <laughs> left and right. You know, it doesn't mean that we don't care things actually it can increase our care because the care is not dependent on it lasting yeah that can be one of the beautiful freedoms that comes through is that sense of care for things yeah care for things i'm looking at my phone which is new to me not new, new to me. And I'm just remembering that the reason I have it was because um, my old phone broke, but it kind of broke very gradually. <laughs> and it was actually a really beautiful experience. Um, I was still in Israel, and I had a few days before I was getting back here and, uh, and you know, could get a new phone secondhand. And so I had to be really careful with that phone yeah because it was it was really breaking in front of my eyes you know the screen was detaching from the body because the battery was expanding and so it was really delicate yeah and I had to be really careful yeah really careful with it it's a beautiful experience 
I'm not so good at looking after things usually, so it was pretty new for me. Yeah. So, ah, you know, I really have to touch it gently and to be really patient with it as it does its thing. Yeah. And to accept imperfection. You know, the fact that it's going to turn itself off at any moment. Okay, we can, you know, that can really come when we see, ah, this is actually broken. This is actually, in, it's not going to last. And we can have that beautiful sense of care towards something. Um, and also, really be free to enjoy what is here when it's there. You know, this is the other aspect of, of this teaching. Of like, wow, right now, it's whole and it's functioning. You know? Isn't that amazing? No, isn't that amazing? So if we look at this teaching of the glass is already broken from the lens of the Four Noble Truths, you know, we can see, you know, the first truth, that dukkha is there, you know, there is dukkha through just being alive. There will be things that we don't want. (coughs) We won't get things that we do want. Yeah. And things will break. <laughs> yeah. And we see it. That's part of experience. That's part of life. And we can also see the second noble truth, you know, that the dukkha is in the clinging. It's in my attachment to that thing, to that glass, to that phone, of wanting it to not break, wanting it to stay like it is, whatever that thing is, which also brings the drama, yeah, the heartache, yeah, when it breaks. I've had many experiences in my life <laughs> dropping something, cracking something, quite a clumsy person, yeah. And what a drama that can be. Yeah, what a drama that can be. Also from, yeah, no, I won't go into that. Because of the attachment to the thing and also the attachment to our image of ourselves. Yeah, this, this says something about me. Yeah, that's another thing that's there. So the dukkha is in the clinging. But the liberation from dukkha is possible. That's the third truth. Yeah, It's possible. We can learn to see in ways that free us. We can cultivate ways of looking, ways of relating that bring freedom. And there is a path towards that. That's the fourth. There is a path that we can practice. And for example, this particular teaching from Ajahn Chah, the glass is already broken. The glass is already broken. We can practice that. So I'm not going to go into the detail of the path um, that the Buddha offered, the, the fourth noble truth. It would take the whole retreat <laughs> um, to go into all the detail of it, but I want to highlight one aspect of it. Um, so the path, I'll just name it. Um, it has eight aspects, which are all interrelated. Um, and they're right or no, wise, wise view wise intention, wise speech, 
wise conduct or action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise uh, samadhi, this gatheredness and collectedness of attention that we've been practicing. So those are the eight, and you can just feel by hearing them how they, um, they include our whole life. Yeah, there's no aspect of our humanity that isn't included in that. Um, but I particularly want to pull out in this context that the effort part, which um, I, I find really interesting, um, how the Buddha saw wise or wholesome effort. And listen carefully, because it's quite contrary to, <laughs> to how we usually um, see effort ourselves or in our culture. So he divided wise effort into four parts. The first is avoiding the arising of unwholesome states which have not yet arisen. So avoiding the arising of unwholesome states. The second one is abandoning unwholesome states that have arisen already. So when we see an unwholesome state, that's here. Yeah, greed. Yeah. Confusion, delusion, ignorance, aversion, ill will. When we see these, then we have the intention to abandon them, to let go of them. The intention, really important. So that's the first two. The, th- the third is to cultivate and develop and bring forth. This is all translations of this word bhavana. Yeah? Cultivate, develop, bring, fo- bring forth. Wholesome states which have not yet arisen. So the wholesome which is not yet here, yeah? we give energy to. And the fourth is to maintain and sustain wholesome states which have already arisen. So when there is something wholesome that's here, we sustain it, yeah? we nourish it, we look after it. Yeah? So for me, this is one of the most beautiful teachings um, that the Buddha offered. This really directly relates to this um, ways of looking that we've been speaking of. Yeah? Cultivating the wholesome and abandoning, letting go of the unwholesome. Yeah? And how we relate to life in the, in the state of our mind. And we can reduce what I've just done. So there's the four, and they might be a bit of a, a mindful to remember, but we can simplify it into just two. Yeah. Two ways of practicing wise effort. Letting go of the unwholesome and cultivating, nourishing the wholesome. Yeah. Or, this is a quote from Nathan, the wholesome as things that enable waking up, enable liberation, and the unwholesome as that which brings dukkha. Yeah, supports ill-being. And this teaching on right effort is really um, is a real reminder that the practice isn't about um, kind of sheer willpower. It's not about willing things to be a certain way. But it's more uh, about a connection to depth. 
Yeah, and a kind of alignment. I always feel it as like an alignment with that which is nourishing and wholesome and supportive. Yeah, an alignment with that. Yeah, rather than a forcing of something to be that. And we do that, we do this aligning both in the moment and then also over time. Yeah, because we do it moment after moment after moment, whenever we remember, whenever the conditions support that, we do that. And then over time, yeah, <coughs> shifts can happen. So this, this word that I've been using, we've been using cultivation, is a, is a word that comes from agriculture. Yeah, and so we can see this um, cultivation of the wholesome and the letting go of the unwholesome. We can really have an agricultural image of it, yeah, like a garden that we have where we you know, give the water and the sustenance and the sunshine to that which we want to grow, to that which is wholesome. And we don't feed, we don't nourish that which is unwholesome and the stronger the wholesome yeah aspects or plants if it's a garden the stronger they become the less space there is for the unwholesome to grow so you know that can be a really helpful image And so we can get a sense of, of this whole unfolding of practice as a process, yeah, a process of nourishing, developing the wholesome, letting go, abandoning the unwholesome over time. Yeah, it's a process. And if we go back to that um, idea of dependent origination, that map that I gave at the beginning, which is really not just about those particular components that I was describing, but it's about the understanding that everything is conditioned, yeah? That anything that arises, a thought, a body sensation, an external experience, yeah, is conditioned by countless conditions, yeah? And if it's conditioned, it's changeable. It's not fixed. Because if one condition changes... (laughs) And it will, because everything changes. Yeah. If one condition changes, then the whole thing will change. Does that make sense? Things arise dependent. Everything arises dependent on other things. Yeah. Everything arises dependent on other things. And multiple conditions. Multiple conditions. And if conditions change, the thing itself will change. So a mind state, a habit, a thought, a body sensation. We've been experiencing that here. Yeah, been experiencing that here. And it's a reminder of um, of what's possible. Yeah, of what's possible for us. And we can see that when, 
as I said at the beginning, when we relate to our experience in new ways. We relate to our experience in new ways. And we check what changed when I did that. When I looked through the lens of metta, when I looked through the lens of anicca, when I looked through the lens of Vedana, whatever I was using of the long breath, yeah, whatever I was using, what changed? And what can I learn from that change? That's really important. What can I learn about the workings of the mind and also about... Um, the conditioned nature of experience. Yeah. Conditioned nature of experience. So when we apply a particular way of looking, say metta, yeah, we can check, does it change the way I experience whatever it is, a pain in the body or an ache in the heart? Yeah, when I apply that, does it change the way I'm relating and does it have an effect on the experience itself? Which doesn't mean, as we've been saying, doesn't mean that, say, if it's a body pain, that it's less painful. It might be. Yeah. It might be. But it could also affect experience in the sense of the container that's there, yeah, and how I'm experiencing. And this really takes us beyond um, beyond preference. And I kind of, I wrote this earlier today and I had this image that Hannah, I think, shared yesterday morning about seeing the spoilt child. <laughs> so it takes us beyond that, you know, place of preference and, and my preference into a wider arena. It kind of shifts the paradigm. Yeah, shifts the paradigm. So it's not so much about, um, you know, what I'm trying to say here, it's not so much about, oh, this is a good experience or a bad experience. Yeah, it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's more about, ah, this is, something's going on here. That's interesting. It's beyond the pleasant, unpleasant. I like it, don't like it. There's something more. How are the energy levels? You have energy for a bit more? Or kind of had like... You're allowed to say, yeah, be, be the minority. A little bit full. Mm. I mean a high level of energy. Ah, high level of energy, okay. <laughs> oh well. Thanks for clarifying that. Okay, now we've had a laugh, it's even better. Okay. So shifting that paradigm, and I'd like to particularly kind of say a few things about metta in, in relation to this. Um, yeah. And basically what I'd like to say is that metta's good for us, in case it's not clear. And good as, um, you know, not good as, opposite to bad, but good in, in this language that I've been using of the wholesome. Yeah. And it's, it's wholesome for us individually, <coughs> um, and it's also good for those around us. Yeah. It's also good for those around us. I, um, I often remember... 
at Guy House, the meditation centre that I teach at, which isn't far from here, um, there's quite a large garden and it's been a meditation centre for several decades now, I think since the mid-90s. And before that it was a, a convent um, for silent, silent nuns. So it's got a real history of being like a place of real silence and, and non-harming. And I always find it incredible when I'm there um, to see there's a lot of birds and rabbits <laughs> and to see how unafraid they are of human beings. I just find it incredible, you know. And, and that's what I mean when I say meta, um, non-harming, you know, this kind of, that's, that's what I mean when I say it's good for us and it's good for those around us. Yeah, it's something that um, can become really, really present in an environment when there's a lot of people who are practicing that particular attitude. Yeah, that particular attitude and just to see you know, that the birds will just come and, and sit practically on your foot, <laughs> you know, and they're not afraid. Yeah, and, and it's an environment, yeah, because of course b- birds don't stay limited just to that particular garden, but they have a sense of this is a p- environment that's safe. So metta is good for us and it's good for the, those around us and it's good for the, for the whole. And I think I said that, I maybe said it yesterday, but just we can really imagine what the world would be like if there was more, there were more of this wholesome way of lo- ways of looking around. If there was more metta, if there was more compassion, if there was more joy, if there was more generosity, yeah, if there was more gratitude. How would what would the world look like? Yeah, what would the climate emergency look like? Yeah, if there was more of that. So when we cultivate the wholesome, it's really not just about me. <laughs> and I think that's kind of one of the the really key factors about it. As we cultivate what's wholesome, we cannot stay limited in just me. It just doesn't work that way. It opens us up and it has an impact. Yeah. And again, it's something we can intentionally remember and come back to as both um, a motivation for our practice and a resource. Yeah. And remembering it's not, I'm not just doing this for me. Really remember that. You know, on, on, when sometimes when I'm on retreat and things are difficult, having that as a motivation, I'm doing this not just for me. It's not just about me. It's about cultivating, nourishing these qualities, these ways of being and of looking and of relating in the world, nourishing them in the world because I am not separate. If I nourish it in here, it's in the field. Yeah, it's in the world, it's there between us. So a few things that happen when particularly metta is present. Um, what I said, we become more aware that this is less about me, life is less about me, in a way that includes me. This is the really fun, beautiful aspect of it. 
It's less about me, but it includes me in it. Yeah. It's also not not about me. And we we get in touch with a deeper source of well-being that's less reliant on external. Yeah. So it goes directly. Yeah. To this clinging to these causes of suffering. Because if there's a source of well-being in here, I'm not looking for it out there. And it doesn't have this contractedness and this tension. It connects us. It also increases our capacity to have more care and understanding towards what we don't want or don't like. This is also where it's really interesting. It's not just about making everything beautiful and easy. It actually increases our capacity to have care and to have um, energy also for what is difficult or what we don't like. And we experience over time a lot less aversion. Yeah. Less aversion. And metta dissolves the, this confusion that we have, this ignorance that we have around um, self and other, around boundaries. Yeah, I think that's already kind of been obvious in what I've said. Yeah, it dissolves. I'm using metta as an example here because I love it. It dissolves these boundaries yeah, between the self and the other. And it reminds us of our mutuality, of the fact that we are here together, yeah, that we don't exist separate from others. We don't exist separate from the planet. We don't ex- exist separately from um, all the beings that share it with us. Yeah, it reminds us of our mutuality. We depend on each other and others depend on us. Yeah, it goes both ways. Everything is changing and changeable, including our mind and heart. And I think I've said it already, um, that the mind is pliable and flexible. It's not fixed. And as we do these practices, we're increasing that pliability, that flexibility of the mind. We're increasing it and we're also kind of honing it. Yeah, in a particular direction of the wholesome, cultivating the wholesome, cultivating the wholesome. And it brings relief in the moment and it brings change over time, rewires the mind over time. And I just want to end with really simple but incredibly amazing experience um, of, of how this works, amazing for me, might not be amazing for you, how, how this can work. And um, in the last, I don't know, six weeks maybe, I've really noticed a fruit of the practice that's arisen in, my, in the way my mind works and probably won't last because nothing does, but it's very, very enjoyable. And basically, I've noticed, I have a very aversive mind, so the way my mind usually, where it usually goes is to the negative and to irritability. And recently I've noticed that whenever something unpleasant happens, where my mind goes is to gratitude. And it, I can't say how phenomenal that is 
uh, as an experience. Yeah. So you know, it can be really relative, like very everyday, simple things. You know, of um, I'll give an example. So I was on a flight from Tel Aviv back to London. Um, actually, I think it was exactly a week ago, and we were already sitting on the plane when they announced there was some problem uh, with the computers, the British Airways computers in London, which meant we couldn't take off. And we ended up sitting on the runway for three hours before we took off, and then another half hour when we got to Heathrow, which meant that instead of a a four-and-a-half-hour flight, it was an eight-hour flight. (laughs) Anyway, the incredible thing was that there I was, through this whole eight hours, yeah, not just for a blip of a moment. And I was feeling relaxed, at ease, and grateful, and compassionate towards others, yeah, towards the flight attendants that had to work so much longer, yeah, which meant that I could also say that to them, towards the people sitting next to me who had to catch a connecting flight to the US, yeah, I could just feel, you know, there was gratitude and there was compassion, and there wasn't, you know, a moment that landed of aversion. Aversion could rise up, but it didn't land, it didn't take root. And this was the, the kind of, this was the state of the mind. And so you can see, hopefully, with this, you know, it's a simple example of how when we do this practice, when we do this work, when we come back to letting go, abandoning, the unwholesome, and cultivating, yeah, nourishing the wholesome, it bears fruit, and that has an effect on us, and it has an effect on others. Yeah, very, very directly. We don't know when, we don't know how. Yeah, we don't know where. Yeah, but it's there. It happens. So we can remember that possibility. Yeah, so when things feel dull, um, or... Um, lacking interest, we can tune in to what is beautiful. Yeah, we can tune in to what brings um, a sense of joy or well-being. You know, when things are difficult or painful, we can bring in compassion. Yeah. We can bring in gratitude. Yeah, we can we can apply these ways of looking. When we feel a little low, we can contact what brings us joy or what we're grateful for in the direct experience of the moment without pushing without too much expectation but just out of interest what happens when we do that in the moment and over time so let's have a a quiet moment together to bring this to a close.
So may our practice together nourish the wholesome in our own hearts and minds and in the home that we share with all beings. And may our practice be for the welfare and the benefit of all beings in all directions, including ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.